0: You're listening to an audio message from The Well. A gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. So with that, I want to pray, and then we'll dive into Ephesians chapter 1. Bow with me. Father, thank you so much for the privilege that we have to gather here as a church family and to worship you and to spend time in prayer and to open your word and to invite you to speak to us to basically press pause in the craziness of our week and to literally sit at your feet and be consumers who say we need to hear from you god thank you for that privilege that we have I pray that you would bless our time together and that you would speak to us, that you would challenge us and change us. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. So here's the question I have for us today to kind of get us rolling and get us started. How do you follow an amazing mic drop? Just think about that. How do you follow an amazing mic drop? I love Adam Levine. (laughs) <laughs> Number one, I'm really jealous of his tats. Two, he looks really good in a flannel shirt, and I don't. If any of you love The Voice, um, then you're with me. It's a show that our family really enjoys um, when it comes back on each, uh, each season. Uh, and so that's why you see that picture up on the screen of Adam Levine doing the mic drop, right? What happens when an amazing mic drop happens? How do you follow that? But what do you do when somebody drops a big fat truth bomb right in front of you in, in, in both a clear and compelling way that challenges you or encourages you? What do you do when someone tells you the greatest news you've ever heard? Think about that. That's a mic drop, right? When somebody drops the greatest news you've ever heard, like, like when you hear that the, that the cancer went away or, or, when you, or, or when you hear that the job that you've always wanted is now yours, or, or the man or the woman of your dreams just noticed you. That's a mic drop, right? What do you do? You scream. <laughs> I get excited. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, when, maybe when the financial pressure, we just talked about finances a little bit, when the financial pressure finally lifts, or you, or you make it a day, or maybe you make it three weeks um, without giving into that temptation, right? To sin in that way whatever that way is for you. When you make it for that long without giving in to that temptation. Or maybe, maybe think about this. Maybe you've experienced this. An old friend. Old friend who was your enemy at one point. He was your enemy. Somebody, relationship fell apart. Hasn't spoke to you in years. He finally comes and reconciles with you. That's a mic drop. What do you do in those moments? How do you follow that mic drop? And here's the thing. I want to kind of lay out two different kinds of people for you that I can see in my head. Some people, when a a mic drop like that happens, some people, these moments are life-changing, right? But for some people, for other people, uh, there's maybe like a momentary recognition Does something miraculous happen and then life just goes back to normal? Goes back to the same old way that it always was, right? No change. Mic drop happens, truth happens, miracle happens. Some people in one category, radically change for the rest of their lives. Other people, no change whatsoever. Stuck in an endless cycle, right? Anybody ever feel like you get stuck in an endless cycle that you can't ever get out of? like The cycle of stuckness, right? Crazy, like like stuck in a rut is what we call that. And yet for other people, for other people when when this kind of thing happens in their life, it's as though they come alive for the very, very first time. Anybody ever experienced that or know somebody who walks through those moments when when it was like, man, that old person, no more. This is a new person in front of me. I don't even recognize them from Yesterday, it's like they have come alive for the very first time in their lives. It's like the mic drop of their lives just happened and their eyes are like wide open to the possibility of something better than what's right in front of them. And they begin to live differently from that point forward. So here's what I want to say. After kind of building those categories of introduction for us, Like when you hear and believe the gospel, you begin to live your life with your eyes wide open. And when you begin to live your life with your eyes wide open, you are set free. Because why? Because the truth sets you free, right? No longer living in that rut, you're set free. When you begin to live your life with your eyes wide open, you are set free to trust and to love, and to know, and to hope, and to believe, and to live in the power of Christ. That's a mouthful. That's our big idea that we're going to work with today, that we're going to kind of spend time working our way through as we look at this passage. Look at Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, Paul says this, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and your love toward all the saints, I... raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And most commentators um, note that these six verses, verses 15 through 20, are made up of no less than 138 words. 138 words. And they're actually part of a long, run-on sentence that makes up a a prayer of thanksgiving from the Apostle Paul. Paul. And he's praying uh, uh, this prayer of thanksgiving to the Lord for his work in opening wide the eyes of the Ephesian believers. That's what's happening in what I've just read to you. And don't miss this either. Don't miss this. These these six verses that we're dealing with today, verses 15 through 20, these 138 words that make up this long, rambling, run-on sentence, because the Apostle Paul is like the king of run-on sentences... And they come right on the heels of Paul's song of celebration in verses 3 through 14. If you have your Bibles open in front of you, you might glance at that for a minute. And those previous verses, verses 3 through 14, they are also a long, run on sentence, and they're made up of 255 words. It's crazy. Crazy. Our English translations, with all of their punctuation, all their periods and commas and semicolons, that they don't do the original Greek text justice. Because in the original Greek language, Paul's sauna of celebration is a run-on sentence of 255 words, and Paul's prayer of thanksgiving is a run-on sentence of more than 138 words. Now, I know that you might be sitting there and you might be saying, this is great, Joe. Like, I know you're like a little bit of a theological geek and everything. Uh, one of you guys, I think, before services is actually like, really, Joe, you counted the words? Um, actually, I did, just to test and make sure that what the commentators were saying was right. Um, and so, yeah, I do geek out over this stuff. <laughs> Track with me, though. Track with me. Like, think, this is probably the question that you may be asking. Why is our pastor leading in to this message with such an emphasis on Paul's uncanny ability to write really great, run-on sentences that would drive school teachers crazy? Like, what? Why? I want you to land there if you're not already asking that question. If you haven't checked out already, and if you have checked out, then come back, start asking that question. Okay, why, why is why is Joe making a big deal out of this? Let me propose it this way. Uh, and let me say this. Let me say this. I, I'm pressing uh, this button hard for a minute because I believe that if we um, if we can wrap our minds. Uh, around this for just a minute, then I believe that what the rest of what the Apostle Paul says here in these verses, I believe that it might actually get a grip on our hearts and our souls. That's, that's why I'm pressing this. I have a deep fundamental belief that if we would spend some time thinking about this, wrap our minds around the, 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 the implications of this, then then this would get a grip on our hearts. It would move from the head to the hearts. So what is Paul's use of 255 words? In a song of celebration, and his use of 138 plus words in a prayer of thanksgiving had to do with us learning to live our lives with our eyes wide open. We propose the answer this way. Ready? Yes. Okay. Are Are you all ready? Okay. Are Are you all really ready? Yes. Dang. Rough crowd. Are you guys ready this morning? Yes. Yes. You ever met a person who just simply won't shut up about something? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've met somebody that won't just, just won't shut up about it, right? Like that's all they talk about all the time. They just won't shut their freaking mouths, right? You ever meet that person? Yeah. Are you sure? Positive? Got that person's like picture in your head? What does that tell you about that person? What does that tell you about that person's heart? They're passionate. What are they passionate about, right? The things they're talking about. The things that they just won't shut up about. All the words coming out of their mouth tells you what they're thinking about and what they're caught up with. That's why this is important because that's the Apostle Paul in this passage, that's the apostle Paul in this song of celebration. That's him in this prayer of thanksgiving. Paul is absolutely jacked up and riveted completely. He's excited about the gospel of Jesus Christ and he won't shut up. He won't shut up or put up or run off. This is who he is and he's jacked up about it. Why? Because his heart is gripped by it. Now what grips your heart? What do you talk about? What do you run off at the mouth with? Look at your last five to 10 text messages to your closest friends right now, right? Look at your last five to 10 Facebook posts. What are you jacked up about? Are you jacked up about Jesus? Is that what causes you to get going? Does that get you out of bed in the morning? The Apostle Paul, man, he's jacked up about this. Like he's not just rambling off a whole bunch of head knowledge here either. Like, Like Paul's not just rattling off a bunch of useless factoids, right? In the midst of this, he's actually running off at the mouth because his heart, the eyes of his heart are wide open, wide open, captured by the presence of someone named Jesus. And he simply, like I said, he will not shut up about it. He will not go back to running blindly through life. What is it specifically, though? It's a question we've got to ask. What is it specifically that causes Paul to become this dude whose eyes are wide open, whose heart is completely captured by Jesus? What causes Paul to run off at the mouth for 138-plus words in prayer and thanksgiving? What causes him to run off at the mouth for 255-plus words in a song of celebration? And the answer to that question, I think, can only be found by looking at the text We've got to look at all 393 of those words. Thankfully, for you guys, we already did 255 of them in the last three weeks, so we only got to do 138 tonight, or today, which um, might cause some of you to be really afraid because it took me 255 words for three weeks, and we're going to try to do 138 in one morning. Um, <laughs> let me bring us back to center in case I've lost you a little bit. When you hear and believe the gospel, You begin to live your life with your eyes wide open. And when you begin to live your life with your eyes wide open, you are set free to love and to know and to hope and to believe and to live in the power of Christ. This big idea is what I believe causes the Apostle Paul, once again, to run off at the mouth for the last 393 words in, first, a song of celebration, and now, secondly, in a prayer of thanksgiving. In short, what I see happening is the Apostle Paul has become a man who has heard and believed the gospel, and he's now living his life with his eyes wide open. And he's doing that to the effect that in his life and in his heart, which is now totally gripped by this newfound freedom that he's found in Christ. He's no longer the old man he used to be, he's now a new creation in Christ Jesus. And he's been set free to love and to know and to hope and to believe and to live in the power of Christ. Not only that, this apostle slash pastor of the church at Ephesus. He's also gripped by the excitement that he's not alone in his journey. He's not the only one who is living this thing out. I believe what we see in this passage is that the heart of Paul's church is gripped by this same truth, gripped by the same eyes wide open reality of the gospel. And the one question you have to start asking of yourself today is, is this you? Does this describe you? truth is this could be you today. And the question is, how can you know if this is you today? Three things that might help. Number one, your eyes are wide open if you trust God and love people. Your eyes are wide open if you trust God and love people. Now, at first glance, you might be thinking, yeah, I believe in God, or I believe in a God, and I try to love people the best I can, right? But let me clarify what the Apostle Paul is not saying here. Here's what he's not saying, lest you or I be deceived in what he's actually saying. Here's what he's not saying. He's not saying, hey guys, I'm launching into this lengthy diatribe of prayer because you have some foggy notion that there is a God in heaven. And due to that, you try to treat people nicely. That's not what the Apostle Paul is saying here uh, at all. If we believe that, we miss the point of what he's saying. Because what he's actually saying is this. Hey guys, I'm launching into this lengthy diatribe of prayer because I have heard of your faith and your Lord. Uh, the, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love towards all the saints. In other words, Paul is saying, I can't stop myself. I can't stop myself from, from hitting my knees in a lengthy run-on prayer for you because I've heard that you've trusted in Jesus as your Messiah and your Savior. And the proof of that the proof that Jesus is actually your Lord and Savior, your King, the proof that you actually are a Christian is this, evidence that your love for all the saints, not just for some, not just for some other brothers and sisters in Christ, but all your brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, Paul, Paul's heart is absolutely gripped by the evidence of faith and love in the church at Ephesus. They aren't simply behaving in some cultural construct of who God is. They've trusted everything to Jesus. Jesus is their Savior. Jesus is their King. And the proof of their faith is that Jesus is their Lord and King. And the proof of that is that they are mastered or controlled or compelled by their newfound ability. to Actually love all of their brothers and sisters in Christ. They're not just playing nice with the brothers and the sisters that they like. Or the brothers and sisters they have something in common with? Or the brothers and the sisters that they get along with? They are just enjoying the company of people who make them feel good about themselves. Listen to this. They're actually loving the unlovable. Why? Why are they loving the unlovable? Because Jesus loves the unlovable, and these people had actually met him. When you hear and believe the gospel, you begin to live your life with your eyes wide open. And when you begin to live your life with your eyes wide open, you are set free to trust and to love and to know and to hope and to believe and to live in the power of Christ. Your eyes are wide open if you trust God and love people. Are your eyes wide open today? Do you trust God as your Savior and King? Is there evidence of your faith? Do you love the unlovable because Jesus loves you despite the unlovable things you do? Do you only play nice with people because they have something to give you? And your eyes are wide open if you trust God and love people. And then number two, your eyes are wide open if you rest in the hope of your calling. Number two, your eyes are wide open if you rest in the hope of your calling. Let me ask this question. What causes you to pray the most? What causes you to pray the most? Do you pray the most when you face hardship? Do you pray the most when you feel lonely or frustrated or angry, sad, or helpless, or lost, or disappointed, or discouraged? What causes you to pray the most? And let me ask this what do you pray when you do pray? Do you pray for a quick release from the pain and the agony, or do you pray for wisdom and discernment and understanding and knowledge and insight, strength to obey? Strength to trust in the assurance of the riches of God's grace? Well, what do you pray for? So Paul says that he prays the most when he remembers the Ephesian believers. He literally says this in verses 16 through 18. So if you have a Bible in front of you, you have a handout. Look at it there. He literally says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Wide open that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? In other words, Paul says, I can't stop praying for you. I can't stop praying for you. And I'm not praying for some momentary relief of your earthly afflictions. I'm praying that your eyes would be wide open to the hope of your calling. That's what the apostle Paul is saying here. That's what he's praying. Listen to this. What causes you to pray reveals your pain. What causes you to pray reveals your pain. And what you pray for reveals what you hope for. Think about it this way. Paul is in a prison cell. Ephesians is part of a couple of different letters in the scriptures. The apostle Paul wrote from prison. I don't think of a really nice cush jail cell with a flat screen TV in the mess hall. Think of a pit in the ground that's full of urine and feces and rats, and you're you're exposed to the elements. That's where Paul's at, and he's writing this. He's not writing letters for people to get him out of jail. He's not writing letters to the newspaper talking about how oppressed he is and how innocent he was because he was innocent. He's writing letters to the church to encourage them, right? So think about that. That's his earthly circumstances. That's where he's at. He's in a prison cell. That's his momentary earthly affliction the Ephesian believers that he's writing to. They're living in an environment that's hostile to the gospel. People are getting crucified, getting their heads cut off and being hung and tortured because they claim to have trusted in Christ. We don't get this in America, okay? And we really need to wrap our minds around it as we sit in our cush little setting right here. We need to put ourselves in that place. That's their momentary affliction. Both of these momentary afflictions are what I would call the pain that causes Paul to pray. What Paul prays for also reveals what he hopes for. That's why I said, what you pray for reveals what you hope for, and what causes you to pray reveals your pain. That's why I asked at the beginning, what is it that causes you to pray? And when you pray, what do you ask for? Paul doesn't pray this. He doesn't pray, hey, Lord Jesus, please get us out of this place. He doesn't pray that. He doesn't pray that. That's not the way he's praying. He instead is praying for wisdom and discernment and understanding and knowledge and insight and strength and assurance in the riches of God's grace. He simply prays that the Spirit of God would open the eyes of the hearts of the Ephesian believers to the hope of their calling. Paul's great pain in these baby believers is that they wouldn't go backwards his great pain is that they wouldn't go backwards is that they would move forward that they would hear the mic drop of their lives in the gospel and that would radically reorient their lives in a different direction than where they had been headed his pain is that these new believers would not shipwreck their calling his pain is that these saints wouldn't backpedal in their newfound understanding of who and whose they are so he prays a prayer of thanksgiving. He prays a prayer of thanksgiving to God for, for God's faith preserving work. And he asks the Father to pour out his very own Spirit in full measure upon his friends so that they would live their lives with their eyes wide open to the hope of their calling in Christ Jesus. That's Paul's prayer. When you hear and believe the gospel, you begin to live your life with your eyes wide open. And when you begin to live your life with your eyes wide open, you are set free to trust and to love and to know and to hope and to believe and to live in the power of Christ. Your eyes are wide open if you rest in the hope of your calling. The question for you to ask is Are your eyes wide open? Are my eyes wide open? Are my eyes open to the pain that causes me to pray? Are my eyes open to the truth that what I pray for reveals what I actually hope for? Am I praying for momentary relief of my earthly afflictions? Or am I praying for wisdom and discernment and understanding and knowledge and insight? And finally, strength to actually live in obedience to the hope of my calling in Christ Jesus. Or am I just willing to to shipwreck it all for momentary affliction and momentary desire and momentary satisfaction? Are you praying for the strength to live in the assurance of the riches of God's grace? Your Eyes are wide open if you rest in the hope of your calling. Finally, number three, your eyes are wide open if you believe and live in the power of Christ. Your eyes are wide open if you believe and live in the power of Christ. Let me ask this question to redirect your thinking. Where do you get the strength to continue moving forward? Think about it. Where do you get your strength to continue moving forward? What do you rely on? I know that the simple Sunday school answer is Jesus, right? Put that placard over it, go home, go take a nap. Got the answer right, check mark, star on my chart. I'm a good little Christian boy or girl, right? Jesus is the answer. Let me challenge you just for a minute, not disagreeing with you just really want to spend a few moments actually seeing if you and I actually have wrestled with what it means to say Jesus is the answer. Like we, we can wear t-shirts about it. We can hang crosses on our necks. We can hang crosses on our rearview mirrors. We can post little cutesy things on Facebook that say I'm a Christian. And if you don't repost this, like God's not gonna bless you type of thing, which I totally detest. And I think some of you probably do too. Uh we can do all those things, but the question is, is, do you really know? Like, Be honest for a minute. Where do you really turn in your weakest moments? Where, where do you turn when you're lonely? Let's ask it specifically. Where do you turn to when you're lonely or you're afraid or you're tired or you're angry or you're sad or you're discouraged? Where do you turn to? Who do you text? Who do you call? What simple patterns do you turn to in those moments to put a little salve over that? To satisfy that. Let's make a bold proclamation here. Like whatever fills your mind in those moments of pain and suffering, then th- that's what you look to as a source of power and strength. That's where you're plugging yourself into. For instance, when you're feeling lonely and all you can think of texting or calling or visiting, maybe that friend or a significant other, then maybe, maybe that, that's where you're looking for your source of power and strength to pull you through the loneliness. When you're feeling angry or frustrated because someone isn't doing what you want them to do and you jump into a fight with them and attempt to one-up them or win the fight or prove that you are right, then you are looking to your own ability to reason well as your source of power and strength. You think that if you win the fight, you'll be powerful, but let me just remind us of this. Winning isn't everything, and it takes a much bigger man or woman to walk away. We know those principles are true, right? What would it look like for you and I to get away from the quick fix of the cell phone text, get our hearts into the slow burn fix of the biblical text? Let me ask that question again. That's worthwhile, don't you think? What would it look like for you and I to get away from the quick fix of the cell phone text and get our hearts into the slow burn fix of the biblical text Thankfully. Thankfully, in this passage, Paul does not pray that God would help us to find our soulmates so that we could be strengthened in our loneliness. He doesn't pray that God would give us the ability to reason well and win fights. Instead, the Apostle Paul says, I am praying without ceasing that you would know what is the immeasurable greatness, the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places. In other words, Paul is praying that our eyes would be wide open to believing and living in the power of Christ. What does that mean? What does that mean when Paul prays this way? Here's what I think it means according to the text. When we actively believe that Christ's powerful presence is immeasurably sufficient to calm the waves of our loneliness then we will not rush to the cell phone text like I said we'll actually run to the biblical text that's where we'll go why because that's God's word speaking to us that's why and here's the deal if Jesus is actually sufficient for you in these moments. You won't use other people to suffice your loneliness, but instead you'll bring the satisfying presence of Christ into their lonely world. That would be the difference. Looks the same on the outside in some regards. Shift gears. When you're in an argument with someone that just simply doesn't get it, you won't attach your well-being to his or her ability to get it, or to your ability to convince them. In short, instead of trying to be their Holy Spirit, you'll actually let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit, and you'll bring a presence of quiet, 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 trusting power of Christ into that relational space. Like, these are just two examples. All I've done is set up two examples to kind of try to help us understand and wrap our minds around how this principle actually works its way out in, in life. There, there could be a gazillion others, Right? I've only used those two. Partially because those two are ones that I struggle with as well and have struggled with. The question is how, right? It's not what we always ask. How? How do I do this? Thanks for teaching me all this stuff. How do I do that? How do you become this person? Can I just answer our questions somewhat simply? Draw your attention for like just a final moment here to the truth of the cross and the resurrection on this? I mean, shouldn't that be kind of where we all land? We're Christians, and if we're not, and you're here and you're not a believer, then this is where we would want to land you. The power of the cross and the empty tomb. Like seriously, if you've been believing that relationships with a soulmate, or if you've been been thinking that winning arguments actually holds more power than the work of Christ at the cross for salvation or the power of God in the empty tomb over your loneliness, then listen to the words I'm about to say. This truth should be deeply comforting for you, not shaming. Why do I say that? Why do I say it should be comforting, not shaming for you? And I say that because if if you've traded the power of the cross and the empty tomb of Christ for the fleeting and momentary weak power of things on this earth, like relationships and winning arguments or a host of other things that we could have talked about, right? If you've done that, then the good news for you and I is that the power of the cross and the power of the empty tomb is more powerful than your sin in these moments. That sin is removed if you're trusting in Christ. You've been washed clean and he is filling you with your, his spirit to empower you to live in the freedom of being his son or daughter. The power of the cross and the power of the empty tomb is more powerful than your sin. When you hear and believe the gospel, you begin to live your life with your eyes wide open. And when you begin to live your life with your eyes wide open, you are set free to trust and to love and to know and to hope and to believe and to live in the power of Christ. Watch this video
1: for joy and your only hope for peace and your only hope for comfort and your only hope for love and your only hope for strength in life is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. Your only hope in life is found in the brutal, bloody, humiliating, horrifying death of a naked man on a wooden post. So feel the horror here. We wear crosses around our necks as jewelry and we put them up on the walls in our homes, but you did not do that in the first century. But this is even worse. Cross crucifixion was the most brutal, torturous, shameful, gruesome way to kill someone reserved for barbarians and slaves. And let's admit it, this is absurd to Americans. Take the successful American businessman with a nice job and a big house and a cool car, and take the free-thinking American woman who thrives on her independence from everything, including God. Take them both outside to a city dump where in a back alley a naked man is hanging by nails on a tree covered in blood and you tell that man and that woman your only hope in life is believing that this man is God and your eternity is dependent on submitting to Him as your judge, your master, and your Lord. That man and that woman will laugh, roll their eyes, at most feel sorry for this man in his deranged condition and walk away. Why do so many people in the world look at the cross and see folly, while you and I look at the cross and see forgiveness? You see power in the cross of Christ only because of the mercy of God who has called your name. When you
0: hear and believe the gospel, you begin to live your life with your eyes wide open. When you begin to live your life with your eyes wide open, you are set free to trust and to love and to know and to hope and to believe and to live in the power of Christ. The question is, is are your eyes wide open? Can you sing that song, Amazing Grace? I once was blind, but now I can see. Do you trust God and love people? Do you rest in the hope of your calling? Do you believe and live in the power of Christ? Are your eyes wide open? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege that it is to preach your word. Pray, God, that you would take my feeble efforts and use the power of your preached word to change lives. In Jesus' name.